This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are Ken Dodds. Ken is government contracts industry expert at Live Oak Bank and uh, David Black is a partner at Holland and Knight, and we're back to talk about our uh, all things small business and government procurement. It's, it's a great show. Uh, you know, I think the last time, guys, we did it just was, it's a little bit over a year ago, so it's good to have you back on the show, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So let's start with, uh, and I'll start with you, uh, David. You can talk about these cases. There's a fascinating and they're getting a lot of attention about the rule of two and when you have to apply it or not apply it in the uh, multiple board IDIQ world. Um, the Tolliver decision at the Court of Claims, and then like GAO has a utility decision. Let's talk about Tolliver first because that's what everybody really is talking a lot about. Sure thing. Well, I think some of the context is is really important to kind of set this up. Um, you know, this has to do with when a federal agency is required to do a set-aside uh, competition limited to small businesses. And there's a one rule for contracts, and there's a, you know, different uh, regime that applies to task orders. And for contracts, it's the mandatory rule of two. If there are at least two small businesses expected to submit bids at a fair and reasonable price, the agency's compelled, required to set that contract procurement aside. With category management, there's a lot of um, large IDIQ uh, vehicles where the, the competitions are at the task order level, and agencies have discretion uh, under FAR Part 16 to set aside task orders for small business. And a lot of these task orders contracts have a small business track and a large business track, uh, but it's under the, the discretion. It's not mandatory. So um, in this Court of Federal Claims case decided earlier this year called Tolliver Group, uh, involved in Army procurement. Was the Army was procuring training services for uh, a fire center of excellence at Fort Phil. And they had originally set this procurement aside for small um, disadvantaged veteran-owned small businesses, and they, they, they made awards. And the Army decided to cancel that solicitation and cancel those awards and start over and move over to a large multiple award IDIQ contract vehicle to complete this work. And again, you know, under what they thought was the regime is they could just make that decision about how, which procurement vehicle to use and then apply the small business preference rules that apply to that kind of vehicle. And so that's what they did. And the SDVOSBs uh, protested um, and they made uh, kind of what I think most of us would consider a novel argument that uh, when, the, when an agency is deciding whether to go with a contract or use an existing large business uh, vehicle, task order vehicle, it has to do a rule of mandatory rule of two analysis right then and there. And um, the Court of Federal Claims um, agreed and, and held that the Army had acted arbitrarily and um, basically said, you know, you can't move forward with this procurement at the ta as a task order uh, until you do a rule of two and, and find that there are not 
to small businesses. And of course, the fact that they had made award to two small businesses previously may answer that question. We'll have to see what happens. So it's a big change that really imposes some handcuffs on agencies taking small business requirements using this uh, large business IDIQs. And as I think Ken's going to get into, there's some questions about, you know, how applicable this is, you know, given it's a, you know, single judge at COFSI. Right. So Ken, perfect yeah. segue for you. Yeah. And this is kind of something that you, you kind of experience. The Court of Federal Claims often will make a decision, not really based on the law, but based on the bad facts and the trying to get to an outcome. And I think that's what happened here. Those decisions of the Court of Federal Claims aren't binding on other Court of Federal Claims judges even. So another judge can make a different decision. When we were, when I was in, uh, at SBA, we would often, the DOJ wouldn't even appeal some of these bad decisions to the circuit because they didn't want to get a bad decision from the Circuit Court of Appeals that would apply. So we would just let them lie. But, you know, this, this all goes back to the late 90s when FASA created IDIQ task order contracts. We immediately started having litigation around, can you set aside orders or can you not? Uh, and then when do you determine size on those? And there was size protests and GAO protests. And a lot of agencies at the time, because the, the, the rule of two is statutory below the SAT, Section 15J. Above that, it's regulatory. It's created by the FAR. They could do other things. They can say it doesn't apply overseas, for example, or it doesn't apply to the schedule. At the time, in the late 90s, or early 2000s, some agencies were saying, because of the fair opportunity provisions, we're not allowed to do set-asides of orders. And because of the way the schedule procedures are written, we're not allowed to set-aside orders. So in 2005, if you remember, there was the SARA panel, the Service Acquisition Reform Act panel, and there was a small business group, and we wrote a report. And in that report, we said, agencies uh, should have the discretion to set aside orders. It's almost this exact language that later became law in the 2010 Jobs Act, saying right. in their sole discretion, they may do it. It took SBA from 2010 to 2013, three years to amend its rules to say just that because of the concerns, you know, people were still saying maybe this shouldn't apply to the schedule. Are you going to make it clear that it's discretionary? So SBA certainly wanted it to, to apply. We've, we've asked Congress in the past to apply it to orders, apply it above the SAT, but it never happened. So we thought, you know, at least if we tell people they can do it, that they'll do it. And that would be good for small businesses. So that was certainly always the intent. And, and the reason it's that way is because agencies don't want to have their decisions protested. That slows them down. It's a nuisance for them. They don't want to be second guests. And so that's kind of where... I think most agencies are still going to apply um, or at least think they have the discretion, but I will tell you a lot of agencies just apply the rule of two anyway, regardless of what the law says. A lot of agencies as just as a policy will apply it. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons SBA and, and the federal agencies have met the small business goals now for so many years. I remember the Sarah panel. Uh, I was on it. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember our discussions around, um, you know, the, the, all the small business issues in that particular part of the report. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, and you're absolutely right. The, I, the, the consensus came to create the tool in the toolbox, right. And give people the sole discretion, but there was concern or reluctance on the idea of making things mandatory that, if you give people the discretion and then give them the right incentives, they're going to, it's actually probably going to work better in the long run than create mandatory. Um, and I think it's worked out actually pretty well. 
and balancing. Because in a certain sense that people are applying it, Ken, right? And saying they're doing it every time. They're doing that at their discretion. They're not required to, but they've made a business decision, a management decision to do. Is that fair? Yeah. And I think, you know, agencies are have taken this small business goals uh, seriously for the last 10 years or so. We've, the government's met the, that 23% goal. They're, they're, you know, things are going pretty well. There's a lot of money flowing to small businesses. So it seems to be, to be working, but of course, a particular small business, like in that, the case, the Tolliver case is, is obviously upset that it was set aside and now you're not. And so they're mad enough that they're going to hire a lawyer or go to court. And this is what, what could happen. It probably should have been settled or they made it, maybe should have made a different decision if they could go back, you know, in time. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, I, I, can, I cannot blame those small businesses for being upset <laughs> the way they, they ended up getting treated. It's like, it's one of those situations where I think we all agree bad facts make bad law. And so the flip side of this is there's a GAO case. that's sort of, I guess yeah. we're actually in opposite of this, right? And That's right. Sort of maintain what I would say is a status quo. And the decision is, is called itility. And, you know, GAO basically, you know, they had this, the same issue. This was a Department of Homeland Security uh, procurement um, for IT support for financial systems uh, modernization. And uh, this is one where DHS looked around. It, uh, it had previously been set aside for an SDVOSB, and it was time to re-procure. And DHS looked around at different multiple award vehicles, and it opted to go with the large uh, Alliant 2 contract. And so the inc- uh, incumbent small business protested, and uh, GAO c- came out differently. They, they said, no, an a- agency is not required to apply the rule of tool when it's deciding whether to use a you know, a, a FAR Part 16, you know, a multiple award contract. And it sort of, it looked at the regulatory history and legislative history you all were talking about. And it basically said, you know, look, we used to say the rule of two was mandatory for task orders uh, before 2010. Uh, but then 2010, Congress amended the Small Business Act to allow discretion um, to sort of, you know, clarify agencies have discretion. And you know what, we've had our our hands, uh, our wrists slapped once. So uh, that's what Congress wanted in 2010. Congress hasn't changed those rules. So, uh, you know, again, at, at that stage in the acquisition planning process, it's discretionary what contract vehicle to use and discretionary whether to do a set aside underneath it. So we're, we're not going to impose the rule of two on top of that planning process. Right. Does that go back, right, the, when it was considered mandatory, the Delux decision? That's, that's right. Yeah, I remember that was... That was a big deal back then too. And, and people thought the sky was going to fall because it would be mandatory and would just completely gum up the works. I think that's sort of what I re- remember yeah. about. Is that, fa- is that, is that what you remember, Ken, Dave? <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, well, I was really surprised by that decision because I, as I said before, there's no statutory requirement above the SAT to do rule of two analysis. So, I assumed, you know, Delex, they would come out a different way, but it, it, it did surprise me. But, you know, as I said, the, the language that got in the Jobs Act, I think, came directly from the Sarah panel of 2005. And so that that was kind of the answer, I think, to Delex. And I think in this case, it's pretty clear. I think GEO will keep doing what it did in, in that utility case. If you want to challenge someone's set-aside decision about a task order or delivery order, you're not going to go to GAO. You're going to have to go to the Court of Federal court, Claims, right. and you're going to hope to get the judge that, that yes. did that because uh, I don't know that every judge would follow it, d- depending on the facts. I think there was a subsequent 
case called V-Solvent, where someone tried to challenge something about the schedule. And I think the, the Court of Federal Claims in that case said that it's clear that under 8.4, it's discretionary. So right. they didn't get the same result. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that's a really long and hard decision. That Tolliver decision is hard to read. Man. That was a long time. <laughs> when I sat down and read that thing, oh my gosh, it's like, it gave me a headache. Anyway, so guys, we have to take the first break. When we come back, David, I, I know this is a big area for you and, and, and Ken as well, of course, but Mender Protege, Joint Ventures, um, you know, just what's going on in that area, some changes and that sort of thing. My guests today are Ken Dodds. Ken is a government contracting uh, industry expert at Live Oak Bank, and David Black is a partner at Holland and Knight. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are David Black. David is a partner at Holland and Knight. And Ken Dodds is government contracting industry expert at Live Oak Bank. And we're talking about all things small business in government procurement. And um, this segment, um, you know, let's talk about um, joint ventures, mentor protege, and what's going on in that space. And I'll start with you, David. All right. Thanks very much. Well, again, just kind of setting the, the table a little bit. Um, joint ventures between mentors and proteges are, are growing importance uh, since SBA expanded the program uh, back in 2016. Uh, before 2016, only an 8A could be a protege. Uh, and then after 2016, now any kind of small business can get a mentor, um, which is a, a, you know, and gives them access to a lot of business development assistance. And then one of the benefits or carrots for the mentors is they can enter into a joint venture with a protege and, and that, that uh, joint venture uh, qualifies as a small business as, as long as the protege is small for the procurement at issue. And it basically lets uh, agencies, you know, use small, the small business program for more complex uh, and demanding requirements because they get offer proposals from companies that have the resources of the, the mentor who can perform up to 60% of the work. So a lot of action. This is sort of an answer to the mid-tier squeeze. Uh, companies that have been successful and graduate from small business, they can get, you know maintain access to their relationships by getting a protege and being the mentor in these JVs and, and bidding on the follow-on work that they've outgrown. So it's very important. Last year, SBA updated its regulations in some really important respects. One was the, the uh, what's called the three and two rule. There's a lot of rules <laughs> that have numbers in them, but joint ventures are not permanent organizations. They're not permanent enterprises. They're short-term, special purpose. And one of the ways SBA kind of enforces that is limiting the period in which a joint venture can be eligible for small business contracts before affiliation kicks in. And before November or, or October, uh, they, they could a joint venture could be awarded three contracts within a two-year period, um, and that period of time started when the first contract was awarded. And so there was, you know, all kinds of issues about, you know, when when is the period start and what is an award, and it was limited to three. And SBA basically tried to clarify that by saying, you know what, we're just going to have a two-year um, bidding period, and basically from two years from the date of your first award, you can get as many contracts as you can win, um, but you can't submit any more bids uh, once you hit that two-year period from the date of the first contract award. And so this gives clarity uh, to, to the JVs. Um, it lets them sort of be a basically a proposal mill. Um, any 
proposals that are pending before the expiration of the two-year period, you can still uh, receive those awards if the award is made after the two-year period expires, as long as your proposal is already in the door. And so I think it really provides not only clarity, easier administration, but also opens up, you know, potentially more than, you know, much more than three awards if, if uh, a mentor and protege are very aggressive. So maybe yeah, I just can. it seems to me that creates a huge, you know, huge market changer in terms of the incentives for people getting involved in mentor proteges. If you're no longer have a limitation on how many contracts you get, it seems to be that have we started to see a you know a reaction to that in the marketplace, Ken? Yeah, I think I've seen some interesting things. I mean, I think part of it, honestly, is category management related because. As OMB gives agencies mandates to use these category management or, or goals uh, to to use those vehicles, it's really hard for small business to get on those these point systems with ISO and CMMC and all kinds of different points. Yes. The only way as a small business you can get on that is maybe with five other small businesses. I mean, I've seen joint ventures that I believe had like 19 people on the on the joint venture, and I, I'm seeing people come and go from joint ventures and getting access and you're seeing orders under those joint ventures, not necessarily being performed jointly, you know, because a joint venture can't be populated under SB's rules. So on one order might be done hundred percent by one member of the joint venture. Another might be done hundred percent by someone else. They could be 80, 20. There's all kinds of strange splits, splits of the work. And again, it's because these small businesses are panicking and, and want to get on these vehicles. They're doing these joint ventures. Now I know procuring agencies don't really like, that they wish they didn't have to consider joint ventures but because of these small businesses being concerned they've got congress to say you know hey agency you have to consider joint ventures you have to consider the experience of all the members and so we have this kind of strange cycle going on where there's uh, a lot of lot of really unusual joint ventures that i'm sure there's plenty that are, are fine and working together jointly but there's a lot of strange things going on i think under those joint ventures David, some other changes in that area? Yeah, uh, another one that's been kind of a, a thorn in the side of, of joint ventures has been procurements that require a facility security clearance. Uh, and it's been sort of a, a chicken and egg problem. Um, before the new rule, basically the, the requirement was the joint venture entity, the prime contractor was required to have a facility security clearance. Well, under SBA's rules, these joint ventures are unpopulated. It means they don't have any employees performing direct work. And so uh, it was to make the investment, to go through the process of getting a facility security clearance, you know, for a company with no employees and, and oftentimes no business yet, you know, was difficult. It was difficult to get the clearance in, on time. So SBA uh, looked at that problem, understood the problem, and has, has really uh, solved it, I think, in a way that gives a lot of flexibility. Um, number one, they've clarified that if the joint venture entity wants to get a security clearance, um, it can have an administrative employee to serve as the facility security officer, which is a required position. And that administrative employee does not violate or uh, run afoul of the requirement for the, the JV being unpopulated, which is limited to the direct labor performing the contract. So that, that's a nice clarification. But the big change is now the, the joint venture can rely on the security clearances of the mentor and protege members. Um, and it kind of depends, you know, on the scope of work and where, where is the, the cleared requirement. 
if the requirement for security clearance is to perform the primary and vital requirements of the contract, then the, the lead small business partner is the one that has to have the security clearance. If the secured work under the contract is just ancillary to the principal purpose of the procurement, then, then only the mentor who is performing the, that kind of ancillary work needs to have it. But the big thing is, is solicitations need to be drafted now so that, you know, for JVs, uh, the, 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 you're eligible if the right member of your JV has the security clearance for the required work. So big change and, and, and really welcome uh, flexibility. Yeah, to me, that seems to make a lot of sense, right? Don't make people do things twice when they already have it covered, right? So Yes. I, w- I mean, I was surprised that that was an SBA's rule because I know <laughs> I know when SBA does rules, they have to share it with all the agencies and get comments. And I know I'm sure DOD took a look, but I'm wondering if who at DOD took a look because I'm still, and I don't know if we've seen this yet, I'm still wondering how DOD is going to react to that. I mean, you know, are they going to say, well, that's that's in SBA's rules. It's not in the FAR and it's not in the DFAR. And that's not in our procedures and we're not going to follow it. So that might be an interesting case. I don't know if that's been litigated yet, but I can definitely see that coming down the road. Right. So, okay, guys, and we're up on the break. And I think when we come back, maybe we'll finish up anything left on mentor protege and joint ventures. And then we'll turn to PPP loans and, you know, how they relate to government contractors. My guests today are David Black. David is a partner at Hall in the Night. And Ken Dodds, he's a government contracting industry expert at Live Oak. Bank. And I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guests today are Ken Dodds. Ken is a government industry expert at Live Oak Bank and David Blank, who is a partner at Holland and Knight. And we're talking all things small business. Um, and David, I know I had one more topic we wanted to cover on, uh, you know, Mentor Perenergie, Joint Ventures. Uh, so, Go yeah. ahead. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, one more change that I think is is important and will make people's lives easier. Um, it's this requirement for the mentor protege joint venture. The protege, the small business protege, has to perform at least forty percent of the work, and that's what the regulations have said for you know over a decade. And we've all kind of wrestled with, well, how do you measure the work? You know, is it FTEs? Is it costs? Is it revenue? There's a lot of ways you could set up what is the pie and how do you carve up the pie and measure 40%. And the regs really have provided no guidance beyond the work. On this recent um, amendment of its regs, um, SPA clarified that the work could be measured in the same manner as the limitation of subcontracting rules, which we're going to talk about that later. But that's undergoing its own change. And and now it's going to be based on, on revenue, basically revenue under the contract, not costs, not FTEs, not anything else. You know, the companies need to allocate the work and the revenue um, so that the, the, you know, the, the joint venture has to perform at least 51% of the co- prime contract and of its, of its work, then the, the proje has to perform, get at least 40% of the revenue that the joint venture received. So nice change, um, you know, will we'll resolve some uncertainty and some headaches and uh, make planning uh, uh, much more clear. I agree. I mean, that's what I think SBA always intended. Uh, when people would ask me, I would always say, yeah, it's, it's the, 
percentage that the prime has to do because it's a small business set aside. So in the service context, it's 50%. So you have to do 40% of the 50% and the mentor can do up to 60% of the 50% and so forth. So it's always good though to clarify so that there isn't this uncertainty and, and the rulemaking process, it never ends. There's always something that comes out after you do a rule where you need to clarify something or you need to change something because you weren't aware of it. And we're going to talk about that a little bit when we get into the limitations on subcontracting rule. Right. Well, why don't we, you know, I know we're going to talk about PPP. Why don't we talk about the limitations on subcontracting? Now you guys have both brought it up. Well, we knocked that one out of the park right now. So David, you want to start? Sure thing. So uh, this is a, a long saga finally coming to, to conclusions. It should be later this year. I checked the open FAR cases and they're, getting ready basically almost to, to the point of publishing this final rule. So this is a, a, a change um, that started back in, in uh, 2013 when Congress passed the NDA that, that year to change. This is the rule that, that requires a small business to keep at least 51% of the work at the prime contract level. Historically, that was measured on a cost basis, either the cost of labor or the cost of, of pr production or manufacturing. And basically, in the world of firm fixed price contracts, where nobody tracks cost, I think you know, Congress woke up and realized you, you really can't enforce this rule because we're not requiring the collection of data. So they changed it to a revenue base. And then it took uh, SBA until 2016 to update its rules. And here we are, 2021, and the FAR still has not been updated. And, and when you look in, in most uh, civilian agency contracts, you still see the old version of 52 19-14, which has the cost-based rule. And it's been, you know, a lot of angst. Basically, the, the sense in the industry is if you comply with either way, you know, you, you'll, you'll stay out of trouble because literally the, your contract says one way, but Congress and SBA said the other. So, you know, that's informal and, and SBA really hasn't clamped down uh, in, in with anything different from, from that understanding. Uh, you have, you've had some agencies issue deviations like um, DOD and DHS. So this has been in effect in some agencies that have special clauses. But we're on the cusp of this. And you know, it's important because it's, it's a new compliance risk. And I think now that with once you have uniformity, SBA and agencies are going to be ready to clamp down and enforce this. And it, you know, it requires compliance on a year-to-year on a -year basis of the contract. You have a five-year contract you need to be in compliance, not over the five-year period, but year to year. Year to year, wow. And, not, mm -hmm. and folks aren't necessarily planning that today. So again, this will apply to future contracts with the right clause, so you'll have some notice. But it does change how you plan your work. And then, you know, there's a fine. And the, uh, the fine is the at least $500,000 per violation. It's, it's the greater of $500,000 or the dollar amount spent on large business subcontractors in excess of the permitted level. And so that's a huge third rail for small business prime contractor and a, a huge stick that people really maybe haven't taken this seriously because it really has sort of been probably under enforced because of the difficulty and the legal uncertainty. But once this final farther, everything's in place and it's a, it's a brand new day. Ken? Yeah, I have a little inside baseball background in this because I was at SBA when we were doing the, those rules from the NDA of 2013. And, and when we did our final rule, we just said you can't subcontract more than 50% of the contract on a service contract to a large business, period. It was, you know, you get a million dollar contract, you can only subcontract 500000 to a large business. And as we were going out to tell people that this is the final rule, you know, we did a proposed rule, we got comments, this is the final rule. 
we had a lot of stunned people in the in the audiences who didn't who hadn't seen our rule or commented on it and there were a lot of direct calls that they thought should be excluded in certain circumstances you know for example cloud you hire someone to do some it work for you but a lot of that cost might be cloud that's that's ultimately going to a large business um, or people in the environmental remediation uh, field where they said the only people that can destroy this waste are large businesses. So that shouldn't count. We had airline travel, you know, we had mass media buys, basically all these uh, USA aid contracts where they're overseas and they're hiring, you know, locals, you know, um, they're not small businesses. Or, and so there was a lot of um, consternation uh, after we finalized or SBA finalized their rule. And so SBA went back out and got comments and, and created exceptions. And so I think the FAR Council didn't want to move forward with a, a rule that was very, very strict and didn't have those exceptions in it. So once SBA finalized the, the rules with some of these exceptions and things that could be excluded, I think now the FAR Council could, can finally move forward to implement that law from what, eight years ago now. You got, you and I'll, and I'll, I'll add something, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, just to clear, and this is that's a really important issue because the, uh, the SBA rules have these, they'll be in the FAR rule because the FAR rule has to be consistent with SBA. And so you're going to have to pay attention for these hybrid contracts that have supply, a supply component and a service component. You have to look at the NAICS code that's assigned. If, if it's a services NAICS code, then the pie that you divide is the cost uh, the revenue, the revenue paid for the services under that contract, you would exclude the supply component. If it's a uh, manufacturing type next code, well, you use the, the manufacturing revenue, the revenue for the supplies and any, any support services or, or you know, O&M services for the product, you exclude that from the computation. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's things, uh, there's supplies for a service contract only a large business can provide. And yeah. so, you know, and this is going to be part of the planning. This is going to be, people are really going to have to, they do their teaming agreements. They're going to have to think in advance, well, you know, what is the excluded portion of the revenue that we don't have to consider? So they can really come up with a work share that, that's going to maximize the participation of both and stay in compliance. Yeah, it's um, it, the practicalities when you start thinking about how people perform work, right? And, and there are industries where it's basically a large business you know, because of the economies of scale and w or what's being delivered, that's, that's who it is. And, you know, I think, you know, I think it's, you do have to take that in consideration. The government would be, I think, you know, remiss if it did not. So. Um, yeah, you would get I mean, the, the limitations are important. We want small businesses to perform these contracts. We don't want them to just be a pass through for large businesses because otherwise what's the point, but at the same time, you don't want to give an agency ex an excuse to say, well, they can't do 50% of the, of the work. So therefore I don't have to do set asides, you know? So you want to, you want to do set asides where the small business is doing some of the work and where we, where it should be excluded. Uh, you know, I think it makes sense to, to make it easier on small businesses to exclude those things. Yeah, yeah well, I always you know, think I always think these rules give give the small business leverage when negotiating the teaming agreement, you know, with a with a large subcontractor. You know, the better clarity you have, it's it's been a little easier the past few years to say, look, we have to draw the lines these ways. You know, for this task order, you know, you, you, yes, we're teaming for an IDIQ, but we have to comply with every task order. For for you know, we have to comply year to year for a contract. And I, I think it's gonna, it, it helps the small business not get pushed around to, to preserve its work share for, for each, each piece of work and each year. Right, I think it forces them 
to, uh, to be truly, I mean, you would think they are anyway, but actively thinking about and managing their contract, right? Rather than if you looked over a five-year period, you know, yeah, I think you lose your discipline perhaps as you're trying to figure it out and you get to the end and like, oh, uh-oh, we're in trouble. But anyway, guys, we're up on the break. So I guess we'll get to PPP loans and government contractors uh, in the next segment um, when we come back. My guests today are David Black. David is a partner at Holland and Knight and Ken Dodds. Ken is a government contracting industry expert at Live Oak Bank. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guests today are Ken Dodds. Ken is government industry expert at Live Oak Bank and David Black, who is a partner at Holland and Knight. And I know you guys, when we were prepping for the show, you definitely wanted to talk about PPP loans and cost reimbursement contractors and government contractors in general. So David, Ken, who's going first? <laughs> Ken, why don't I lay it out? I'll, I'll bring it in from the legal perspective and you bring it in from the banking perspective. And you're probably dealing with more small businesses on these applications for forgiveness than I am. So, so we're talking about the Paycheck Protection Program established under the CARES Act for small businesses. Uh, the general eligibility standard was 500 employees. Very, very popular program. It's, it's been in the news. Uh, there's, there's basically a process to con convert these loans into grants that do not have to be repaid, and it's, it's through a forgiveness application. The purposes for which the loans could be used was limited to basically payroll costs and certain other enumerated business expenses. And so the uh, situation you have is a, there's a lot of small business contractors who applied for the, their PPP loan last year. Um, there was sort of a, a set window of time in, in which you could use these loans for payroll costs. And there are many contractors who use these the, the PPP loans to pay their payroll for employees who were working on government contracts, federal contracts for which they're also being paid. And so there's a you know question that's arisen was is the government paying twice for the same employee? Is this some kind of double dipping? You know, doesn't fairness dictate that the government should get paid back one way or the other? Um, and, it, and it is a real issue. And, and we're at the stage now where companies are just applying for forgiveness. They're just gonna, you know, gonna find out how much uh, of their loan is qualified for forgiveness. And they're gonna have to make decisions about do they owe the government customers any money back? And this boils down to what type of contract they were performing with employees for which they use the PPP proceeds to pay payroll expenses. We have to be real clear when we're talking about this, we're talking about direct labor and indirect labor supporting certain kinds of contracts. And the kind of contracts where there's a, there's a credit due back to the government customer are um, flexibly priced contracts, primarily cost reimbursement type contracts. There's a cost principle about credits 31.201-5, DCA has issued guidance that under cost reimbursement contracts, they expect reimbursement. And then the trick here is gonna be, okay, which employees performing direct services and which back office employees did you use the PPP proceeds to pay for? And then, you know, obviously direct labor is a little easier to manage. Uh, indirect rates, you know, how you have to adjust your indirect rates now. And so it'll, there'll be some complexities in that. But for fixed price contracts, for TNM contracts, which are really a type of fixed price contract, the labor rate is fixed, regardless of your cost experience, labor hour contracts with fixed rates, 
there's no reimbursement required under those. And that's, a, that's sort of a common misconception to clear up here is that um, the credit provision is only under cost reimbursement, flexibly priced type government contracts. But if you had TNM and firm fixed price, you don't need to worry about this. Right. Ken, any thoughts? Yeah, Liveoak Bank is one of the leading SBA lenders. So we had that we were really involved in PPPP. And when that that language about the credit first came out, you know, I read it and read it and they, they updated it. I kept reading it. But it, it the main thing I wanted to tell our clients that had mainly fixed price contracts is that this doesn't apply to you. The government doesn't really look at your cost, right? I mean, you can be making 40% margins. You could be losing money and the government doesn't care. You're going to lose money on it, right? It's fixed price. That's the whole right. point of it. But we do have some cost reimbursement contractors. And I did talk to them. We wanted to make sure everything, you know, they were aware of it. What was, what was their strategy? You know, some of them said, it's not real clear. You know, when does the credit have to be given? Because we are doing cost reimbursement, we might have other costs that might also offset this offset. You know, there's other things that have come up over, you know, because maybe we're on site or things like that. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that the loan was pretty good. It had pretty good rates, I think. So maybe you just don't even ask for forgiveness if you're a cost reimbursement contractor. That's another consideration, I think. Uh, so if yeah. you have cost reimbursement contracts, you definitely have to be aware. But there are some strategies you can do to maybe deal with it. But, it, if, it, but if you're a regular small business just doing fixed price, you should be fine. That's great. So let's move on to the small business innovation research, phase three awards, innovations, and that sort of thing. I know that's something that you've been tracking a lot, David. Yeah, just a quick update there. Um, you know, these are, uh, uh, there's a small business uh, eligibility requirement for phase one and phase two. Um, and it's, it's, these are basically a type of R&D contract. And if you get a phase one and phase two, and you can go to um, procuring agencies and say, look, you, you have a requirement that derives from our phase one or phase two work, or it will extend our phase one and phase two work or complete it. And if you do, then you can award us a sole source contract because the process of getting the phase one or phase two awards satisfies the requirement for competition. And these contracts can be of any value. There's no limit. It's, so it's a you know, anyone in this program knows phase three is, is where, what you're hoping to develop, something that procuring agencies will have, you know, procurement dollars to spend. So, um, and, this, and, and there's no size limit on phase three. So you have a lot, a big marketplace for phase one and phase two contractors who either sell themselves with, it, with their award or sell the business unit performing those awards uh, to a larger business who can then get these sole source uh, phase three um, procurement contracts. So two GAO protests in the last year or so, uh, one is about the novation requirement. And this is sort of a tough story for the uh, company that bought a uh, phase one and phase two. They bought the company in an equity sale. They bought the, the stock so that the, the company that held the SBIR contracts was a subsidiary. Mm -hmm. And they thought that was sufficient to make the parent company a, a, a successor in interest. So they went and bid on an opportunity and they were given the award. Somebody protested and GAO said the agency couldn't give them award because the uh, contract had never been novated to the parent company. So that's just sort of a, a lesson learned that, we, that everyone should learn from. You've got to novate the contract to the entity bidding for the phase three. There's a second uh, case that just uh, when an agency does a phase three, it's got to make a finding of that, that its requirement derives from, extends, or completes the phase one or phase two work. And it, it's ASRC, Federal Data Network Technologies, is the case. And GAO did a nice sort of 
reasonableness review, deferential review, the, the memo, you know, had an explanation. It doesn't have to be, you know, perfect. It doesn't need to be an A plus, but it needs, you know, needs to be reasonable. And they were deferential from a kind of withering protest attack. And again, it's, this shows agencies can do phase three if they write a good memo and large businesses are careful about the innovation process. Yeah, one one fun fact about that is I think one of those contracts in that first case you talked about, I think it had it had it, it had ended, so you couldn't possibly novate it because it wasn't even in existence anymore. You know, so they were kind of stuck. And I think I think most SBIR contractors will tell you it's really hard to get phase three. So, to my mind, we should be encouraging these folks if they want to hit a home run and 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 sell. That's great because a lot of these companies are spending a lot of money doing R&D and they're not getting, in the end, they're not getting those phase three awards. So this is like a home run. We should, we should be, um, I think, encouraging these kind of things to the best of our ability. At, th at that point, once you get to phase three, those are such long shots that we want those folks to be able to get rewarded for their, for their efforts and their innovation and their research. And I will add that it is possible, even after the phase one or phase two has been completed, it's not an ovation because the contract's completed, but you can go back to that contracting officer and ask them to recognize someone else as the successor in interest. And, and a CEO does have discretion to recognize someone as a successor in interest. That status is it's in the policy, the SBIR policy directive. So if you're in that setting, that is an option. Right. Okay. We have time for one more quick topic. And, and Ken, I promised we'd get to this. And that's, um, you know, this uh, sort of issue that we're starting to see around the, these government-wide multiple award IDIQ contracts for IT in particular, the GWACs and, you know, even OASIS. And historically, the way the government and GSA, NIH have set these up is they've set up like Alliant, which is open, you know, full and open and open to other than small so they have Alliant, and then they had Alliant Small Business, which was a set-aside multi-board IDIQ, and they ran parallel. And NIH did the same thing with COSP3. And so now we're seeing this trend where agencies are trying to mash them all together in a single contract vehicle. You know, I think, and there's growing concern of potential negative impact on small businesses, creating more complex contract vehicle, where you know the work that the servicing agency originally did at the contract level to create to you know a set aside is now being turned over to the customer agency to do it at the order level, and just that competition of you know creating more complexity, harder to use, less sort of customer friendly, but also less small business friendly. You have any thoughts on that? I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think it's cleaner and simpler to have two different tracks, a, a large track and a small track. The agency, in their discretion, but smartly, applies the rule too. And if it can be done by small, they go to the small one. I think that is a clean, easy way to do it because now those small businesses that got on there, they're basically going to be small for the whole five years until they have to recertify if it's a long-term contract, unless they're acquired or something like that. If you start putting them all together, now you're setting aside an order under an uh, unrestricted contract. Now you're bringing into SBA just changed the rules on status and size. And, you know, now you're getting into whether people are eligible. There could be more protests, I think, at, at that right. stage. And so I think that makes it harder. And then 8A is even more complicated because th there you have to, like, offer the contract to SBA and SBA has to accept it. So it's much better to set it up at the beginning. 
That was one of the problems, I think, with Oasis. Set it up as an eight-day contract at the beginning, and then you don't have to worry about whether they're still in the program when you go to order because it applies to the contract. So I think it makes it easier you know, on everyone, the small businesses. The other thing is, do they really want to see, a, I mean, they may be confident in their ability to compete, but do they really want to see hundreds of different um, solicitations for orders that they probably can't compete for? I mean, if the biggest companies on that contract are going for it in terms of scale and capability, are you really, do you really want to spend your time reviewing those when you have very little likelihood of award? Yeah, I was just finish up, Davies. Do you agree that there'll be a like more likelihood of protest and that sort of thing at the order level? Yeah, I, I sure do. I, you know, I basically agree with with Ken's comments on this. All right, so guys, so we're we're done. We ha- I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. And you know, this is a it will we'll we'll do it again before the end of calendar year. Do another update on small business issues. I want to thank my guest today, David Black. David is a partner at Holland and Knight, and Ken Dodds. Ken is the government contracting industry expert at Live Oak Bank. I'm Roger Walbert, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 